0: Welcome to Geopolitics Decanted. I'm Dimitri Alperovitch, chairman of Silverado Policy Accelerator, a geopolitics think tank in Washington, D.C. Today my guest is Chris Miller, international affairs professor at Tufts, a Russia expert, and an author of a terrific new book, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Critical Technology, which we're going to be discussing today. Welcome to the show, Chris. Thanks for having me. So this book is really fascinating. First of all, congratulations. It's incredibly well written. I think it made the New York Times bestseller list. Thank you, yes. And one of the most incredible things in it is you tell the entire story of how the industry came together from the invention of the transistor here in the United States. And then probably a good chunk of the book is on the rivalry with Japan in the 1980s and how there was massive freakout in the U.S. industry and U.S. government that this industry that we invented that has become so critical to our defense and our economic security was now going to be conquered essentially by an ally, but nevertheless, you know, another country that has its own interests and priorities. And in the end, of course, that did not come true. Japan remains a major player in the semiconductor manufacturing space. It manufactures a lot of the chemicals that you need in the fabs. It manufactures a lot of the equipment, but it is not a big player in the advanced fab manufacturing space. So when I look at the rivalry that we now have with China... Do you think we're freaking out unnecessarily and we're perhaps overly concerned about China's ability to eclipse us in this space? So I, I think if the question
1: is only about will China catch up or overtake us technologically, I would be less worried. But we have on top of that overlaid a really dangerous geopolitical military dynamic whereby the U.S. and China are locked in a competition and Taiwan, which is the heart of the world shipmaking today, is at the center of that competition. So. I think for a long time in the US, it was seen to be just a tech issue, but it's not just a tech issue. It's also a political issue. Uh, And that's why there's different layers of risk layered on top of this, which uh, makes me more worried than I otherwise would be.
0: Yeah. And and of course, the counter to this argument is that, and you also talk about this in the book, that while Japan has failed to become a a huge player in this industry, Taiwan has not. And talk a little bit about TSMC and its evolution and why is it the number one player in chip manufacturing, both advanced chips and a huge player in the uh, what I call the foundational chips or mature chips too. So TSMC was
1: founded in 1987 by um, a engineer named Morris Chang, who's played a critical role from the earliest days of the industry all the way up to the present. And he spent his early career at Texas Instruments uh, in Texas, uh, and was passed over for the CEO job and was looking for something new to do and was approached by the Taiwanese government and given essentially a blank check to start a new company. And he at the time was uh, testing out a new idea for manufacturing chips. Before that point, almost all chips were designed and manufactured by the same companies. Uh, But he realized that chip making was getting more complex, more expensive, and that there would be benefits to only focusing on the manufacturing and manufacturing chips for many different customers. And the key benefit was that that let him scale because he's not just producing chips for one company, but for lots of different design houses. And so the result of that is that TSMC is the world's largest chip maker today that produces economies of scale that drive down costs, and it lets TSMC hone its production processes over lots of different chips because you learn over each chip you produce. And so the more chips you produce, the more advanced your technology becomes.
0: One of the most interesting things that, that I think is, is uh, so fascinating about TSMC is that you had U.S. industry that basically in the late 90s and early 2000s essentially voluntarily gave up its advantage, right? And particularly in the mature nodes, they said, well, this is commodity. The margins are low. We don't need to manufacture that. Let's give it to TSMC. And lo and behold, 10 years later, TSMC becomes a major player in the mature chips and says, well, we have all this cash. We have all this expertise. Let's go and advance chips as well. And Apple comes along that needs a partner and becomes a major customer of TSMC and really a critical partner as well. I mean, I think most people don't appreciate how involved Apple is in the manufacturing of chips in Taiwan and that it literally has thousands of engineers on the ground at TSMC. Do you fear that China is going to leverage the same progression of they're they're doubling down on these mature chips? And eventually, if you have enough expertise, you're going to figure out the advanced stuff, too. So i think china would like to pursue the same strategy
1: and in some ways it is but there's some key differences the first key difference is that taiwan was basically welcomed into the chip ecosystem by the us it was a uh, a country governed by a friendly government there were deep connections between uh customers in silicon valley and uh manufacturing in taiwan and no one saw taiwan as a threat there was no concern nor was there any government regulation that limited ties with taiwan today obviously the relationship with China is quite different. Uh, a couple of years ago, you might have hypothesized that China would be able to keep moving up the value chain, accessing most types of tools, but now we've got a suite of different export controls, investment screening regulations, uh, tightened CFIUS rules, all of which make it much harder for China to access advanced technology. Now, certainly China's going to try to domesticate some of this itself, but it's a lot harder to domesticate than it is to just buy components off the shelf, which is what TSMC's been able to do. I think the second difference is that TSMC's never had a choice but to export because the domestic market is tiny. In China, that's not necessarily the case. And I think there's a chance that Chinese firms and Chinese policymakers decide to focus domestically because they do have a large market. That's probably not going to be a good strategy in the long run, because China's 20% of GDP, the rest of the world's 80% of GDP, and so if Chinese firms do focus domestically, they could make some money over a medium-sized market, but you're much better off selling to the global market. And so, I I actually think China's market size might distract the government and firms away from optimal policy and have them focus domestically and actually lose the ability to sell competitively to the rest
0: of the 80% 80 of global GDP. That's really fascinating. So you mentioned the export control measures. There have been a number of things that the United States has been focused on, both initially specific companies that it would uh, put on the entities list, starting with Huawei and continuing on with others. And then on October 7th, we had this really unprecedented export control measures that came out uh, from the Commerce Department, from Bureau of Industry and, and Security. And one of the things it did is not just limit the equipment that China may buy, But it actually limited the access to U.S. persons, green card holders and citizens that that can work on these technologies in China. And one of the things you really highlight in the book is how much, whether it's in Taiwan or China or even in Japan, how much of that industry was based on uh, expats that went to work in the United States, got citizenship or green cards, and then went back to their own countries. Morris Chang is a good example of that and helped to build those industries. And the same is true in China, isn't it, that you have a lot of U.S. citizens that now will have to make a choice. Do I continue working in China and give up my U.S. passport or green card? Or do I get out of this industry and make maybe less money? But given what Xi Jinping is doing in the country in terms of cracking down on dissent and, and reestablishing a very strict form of authoritarianism, that's that's a hard choice for them, right?
1: Well, I, I think it is, and there's been some good public reporting by the Wall Street Journal and others tracking uh, what decisions the CEOs of some Chinese ship firms are making. Uh, and it's hard to get good data. We've got more anecdotes than we have data. Um, but I, I think the trend is, as you suggest, that uh, when foreigners are given a choice or when dual citizens are given a choice, choose China or choose the rest of the world, it's hard to um, choose China. There are strong disincentives at play. And I think it's partly the export controls, no doubt, but it's also the domestic politics in China. And the third factor is, 10 years ago, it was easy to convince yourself you were going to get rich working in the Chinese tech sector. And today, you can still make a lot of money in the Chinese tech sector, but uh, insofar as the the best examples of tech entrepreneurs like Jack Ma and others have been taken down many notches over the past couple of years, I think it has taken some of the excitement uh, out of working in the tech sector in China.
0: One of the things that I, I, I get frustrated about with this debate on advanced chips versus mature chips is that... We've certainly had a focus on getting to smaller and smaller process nodes, smaller nanometers in terms of innovation, but it does feel like we're starting to lose the forest for the trees a little bit right now because, as you highlight in the book, 90% of all chips are actually not advanced chips, and the key uses for advanced chips are gaming devices, you know, your Xboxes and PlayStations, it's your phones and laptops, And AI and supercomputing, but at least in two out of three of those, I would argue we could live perhaps uh, for a few years without advanced chips and would survive. Not sure the gamers out there would agree with me, but nevertheless. But when you look at national security use cases, virtually all of our weapon systems are not advanced chips, right? You need reliability for them. You need mass production. And also, in many cases, you actually can't solve the problem with advanced chips because you need greater power, in lots of cases, whether it's electronic warfare, radio communications, many other things, you actually need 45 nanometer chips or even 160 nanometer chips because you have bigger transistors that can emit more power. Do you think that from a policy perspective, by focusing so much on advanced chips, and if you look at the Chips and Science Act that passed last year, $52 billion in subsidies plus another $25 billion in tax breaks uh, more or less, almost all of it directed at advanced chips. Are we seeding the market for what we actually need the most by volume, certainly, which is what I call foundational chips or mature chips? So I I think it's a hard question because the answer is you need both. (laughs) Um, You literally can't build anything without foundational chips, even your iPhone, right? That's right. has dozens of mature chips and maybe one or two memory and CPU that are advanced. Well, and that, That's true
1: for, for most types of devices. A car is similar. You've got a 1,000 chips in a new car on average. Most of them are pretty simple. Some of them are, are, are quite cutting edge.
0: And we had the car shortage, which mm-hmm. is, was driven by chips over the last two years. And it was all in mature chips. We right. actually never had an advanced chip shortage. That's right. That's right. I, I think there's, there's no doubt
1: that we'd like to have more mature chip production, either in the U.S. or just outside of China and the Taiwan Straits. Um, I'm happy with new production in Japan and new production in India and anywhere else um, as well. I think the other question that has to be asked though is how do you durably get more production? And and one of the ways that the the foundry companies like TSMC in Taiwan work is that they'll bring online a new generation build a new factory for it, and then keep that factory producing at that generation indefinitely. So they end up getting lagging edge chips after 10 years' time when their formerly leading edge chips are no longer cutting edge. And so one of the reasons Taiwan is such a big producer both of leading and lagging edge is because it built a lot of leading edge in the past that turned into lagging edge. And so I think it's hard to imagine that we're going to be subsidizing semiconductors in a way the Chips Act is doing indefinitely. And so I think the commerce department isn't wrong to think about how do you set in motion business models that might keep investing in the long run and have some of their current day leading edge production be online long enough to be lagging edge production in 10 years time. But that's not to say we don't need to be thinking about both. And we need, in, especially in a crisis scenario, in Taiwan in the next couple of years, we're going to need a lot of lagging edge chips because Taiwan is both the producer of 90% of those advanced chips, but also over a third of the new computing power the world adds each year comes from Taiwan, and much of that is in more mature node chips.
0: You know, I, I actually think that we absolutely need to change the language here. When we talk about lagging edge, when we talk about mature, who wants to be a leader in mature, right? <laughs> in fact, you don't want to be called mature in pretty much anything. And I, the reason I like foundational is the analogy I often use with policymakers is critical materials. Hmm. So when you think about carbon fiber, right, we invented carbon fiber. It's a more durable, much more advanced form of, of material that you can build planes out of. You wouldn't build a Boeing Dreamliner, passenger jet out of it. And yet 20% of the Boeing Dreamliner is aluminum, 10% is steel. So without steel and aluminum, without these foundational materials, you don't have a Boeing Dreamliner. You don't have anything and yet you can build plenty of stuff without carbon fiber. And that's really my analogy of foundational chips versus advanced chips is that you can build a pretty good iPhone with, you know, 28-nanometer CPU that few people will notice is is maybe just a little bit slower than your current iPhone, but you will not be able to build an iPhone or pretty much anything without power management, without battery, without Wi-Fi, without screen control and everything else that is driven by mature chips. And I'm curious, you, you just returned from Taiwan, one of the things I've been hearing from people around TSMC is that they're getting very concerned that with this policy, clear policy to stop China's progress in advanced ships, which I think is, is becoming really effective, right? We're preventing them from buying the SML machines. We're preventing them from uh, buying U.S. equipment and, and now Japanese equipment. And we'll probably slow them down, you know, I don't know, maybe even perhaps 10 years in this space But what that's going to allow them to do is say, okay, we can't produce anything below 60 nanometer. Let's double down on mature chips, which is a huge market. And I've been hearing that TSMC is concerned that because of the Chinese subsidies in the foundational space, that will drive them out of business and they're just going to double down on advance. Have you been hearing that in your travels? So I think there's a lot of concern about
1: Chinese subsidies in uh, foundational, if we'll And I think we're right to be concerned. If you look at the capacity build out in China, it is dramatic. Uh, I think we should assume that the chips that are eventually produced from those new facilities will be sold at below market rates, no doubt. Um, And so then the question is, will anyone buy them? Now, that's a bit of an open question, I think. I mean, there's some uncertainty around that. If they're cheap, why wouldn't they buy them? Well, so I think for, for Western firms, I think there will be some hesitance about buying chips made in China because the trend right now is for electronics firms, auto firms to design out Chinese ships from their supply chains. But I think Chinese customers will probably prefer and maybe even be forced to buy some of them. Uh, and so that does present a problem because China's in, in demand for 20 to 25% of the world's ships. Most of those are still important today. And so that implies a market share shrinkage for non-Chinese firms, Taiwanese, Japanese, American, European. And, and then the question is, what are you going to do about it? Um, you know, traditionally in, in dumping scenarios, of which this would be one, you impose a tariff on uh, on imported goods. But actually, what we're probably talking about is Chinese chip makers dumping on the domestic market in China. And so traditional trade policy remedies aren't going to work, I don't think. Um, and there's not a good strategy yet as to what to do. There's, there's realization in Taiwan, in Japan, in Europe, uh, and in the U.S. that this could be a problem, may well be a problem. I think in an industry, there are some firms that are more exposed than others. For example, in the auto supply chain, auto um, auto customers have some unique safety, reliability, temperature requirements. And so I think it's less likely that firms that specialize in auto chip production in the US or Europe or Japan will actually face real uh, real competition from Chinese firms because... But but
0: aren't you concerned about counterfeit and the fact that it's easy for the Chinese to slap a Texas instrument label on a chip... And who's going to know where it came from? Yeah, that's certainly certainly a concern.
1: It certainly already happens to some degree. This the the scope will increase. Um, I don't know if that's going to be large enough of a problem to be a real commercial issue for Western firms. I, I think that the companies that are most at risk are actually the, the the foundries in East Asia. So it's TSMC, it's UMC in Taiwan, uh, and a couple of others who are largely producing at the, at the lagging edge of the mature edge, commodity runs um, who will be most exposed to direct price competition.
0: So that is so interesting because for the last 15 years or so, both TSMC and UMC have been expanding their business in China, have been training Chinese workers in this industry, essentially creating their own competitors, Why were they so myopic, both from a business perspective and then from a national security perspective? You know, the Taiwanese have been talking for 20 years about this idea of a silicon shield, which I'm not sure I buy. But the idea is that if we have control in the semiconductor manufacturing, China will never invade us. It seems to me that it might be a silicon honeypot, not a shield necessarily. (laughs) But if you do believe in the shield, why would you enable your adversary, your competitor to develop the necessary skills? by investing in those factories. That just never made sense to me. So I think there were a lot of chip companies,
1: not only Taiwanese ones, that were induced to invest in China um, by essentially a deal they struck with the Chinese government. They invested a bit and they got access to the Chinese market. Uh, you saw US firms, you saw Japanese firms, you saw Korean firms make exactly the same bet. So. Uh, The Taiwanese firms aren't unique in that regard. Uh, Certainly the the security situation of the Taiwanese uh, uh, state is unique. Um, But in Taiwan, over the past 20 years, there's been different governments. And under KMT rule, for example, we've seen much more excitement about trade ties on the thesis that thicker trade ties would produce better relations. I don't think that's panned out, but that that was the theory. And in the Taiwanese chip industry, a lot of people made a lot of money. Uh, selling to China and working in China, um, and for a long time, Chinese chip firms were notorious for paying three x or four x the salaries for Taiwanese workers to move across the straits and, and work for a couple of years. I think that dynamic has changed a lot. I think the mood in the Taiwanese chip industry has changed, in Taiwanese politics has changed, and the U.S. crackdown has reverberated throughout the industry in in, in big
0: ways. How do they feel about the export control measures in Taiwan? Do they like them? Do they, uh, do they have concerns about them? I think it depends who you ask. I, I uh, did a public event with Morris
1: Chang, the founder of TSMC, a couple of weeks ago in Taipei, and he um, publicly said, I think for the first time, that he supported the export controls. Uh, I think you can find other people in Taiwan who are uh, worried that this will impact their ability to do business. It doesn't directly impact Taiwanese firms, but there could be
0: second-order effects. And Although the Huawei order that came before the export controls... I think impacted fifteen percent of TSMC's business because it was they were, the second largest customer yeah. at the time.
1: Yep. yeah, but and that was an interesting case. It was at a time when the chip market was pretty tight, and so TSMC basically didn't have any impact from the Huawei controls. Now, currently, we're in a much different chip market. It's a downturn, uh, and so companies are more sensitive, I think, to making sure they're not uh, not losing access to their second biggest customer. Though for TSMC now, their biggest customers are largely
0: American firms, Apple chief among them. So right now, the biggest leverage that we have on the Chinese chips industry is really the equipment and perhaps the chemicals that go into the fab manufacturing. Many of them come from Japan. On the equipment, you have three countries, the United States, uh, Netherlands, and Japan. The manufacturers really all the equipment, all the key equipment that you need in these fabs. With the export controls that are now getting aligned across three countries, preventing China from buying essentially below 60 nanometers or so, Are you optimistic that the domestic equipment firms that China is also trying to invest in hasn't gotten very far yet, that these controls will essentially stop China's progress below 16 nanometer for the foreseeable future? You know, I I think I wouldn't say that they're going
1: to stop any progress. I think we should expect regular announcements from Chinese firms of great achievements, uh, some portion of which will be true, most of which won't be true.
0: And it's important to to highlight also that you can manufacture at very low yield, that, right, exactly. um, high-end chips. And, and there was some stories, I think six months or so ago, that China manufactured a 7-nanometer chip. Well, it's great if you can manufacture one, but it doesn't really mean anything unless you can manufacture tens of thousands. That's right. And for that, you really need this advanced equipment. Yeah, and, and we're never going to get good information on what... Yield is that Chinese firm. So, so it'll
1: it'll be actually I think hard to assess in a lot of ways what progress China is making for a long time. And so, we're going to be in a situation in the next several years of every Chinese firm having a strong incentive to announce you know, cutting edge innovations on a regular basis because that's going to get their funding. Uh, and we're going to be faced with a mix of just boasting and disinformation <laughs> without much actual data to assess it against. And so I think we should, we should get ready for a media environment, which it looks like China is making some real advances without actually much substance behind it.
0: Robert O'Brien, the uh, former national security advisor under the Trump administration, made some news a couple of weeks ago when to a reporter he said that should the Chinese try to invade Taiwan, the fabs will get destroyed, strongly implying that the U.S. military may destroy those fabs. I imagine the Taiwanese are not super happy about comments like that that talk about the destruction of their fabs. But realistically speaking, if we think that Taiwan is going to fall, isn't it in our best interest to make sure that China does not get a hold of the fabs and the equipment in those fabs that is going to be so key to their dominance of the chips industry?
1: You know, I, I think in any scenario where where missiles are flying or it's a, a real wartime scenario the facilities are highly likely to get just fatally damaged. They're massive facilities full of the most precise machines ever made, explosive chemicals, and they require huge amounts of energy, chemicals imported from uh, the US, Europe, and Japan, regular software updates to the tools, and the engineers all need to be there at the same time. So even if nobody bombs them, (laughs) the likelihood that they're working after a month or three months or, or, or longer of warfare seems highly implausible to me. And so in some ways, I think O'Brien's comments uh, address a hypothetical that is highly unlikely to be ever reached, because it seems to me that the moment shooting starts,
0: the chip industry in Taiwan is irrevocably damaged. Predictions are always hard, especially about the future, but I'm going to ask you anyway. So 10 years from now, we'll have the Chips Act in place. Europeans are passing their own Chips Act. Koreans are providing subsidies we have the export control measures that uh, we presume will only get tighter and tighter on China. Where do you think the chips industry will be, China, Taiwan, the, the rest of the West? Do you, th- you see them being maybe where they are today, or do you see dramatic changes developing? So I think in terms of the technological
1: hierarchy of, of China being meaningfully behind what's collectively possible to produce, that would be my base case, persisting into the future. Which doesn't mean that China doesn't make any advances, it just means that the rate of advances isn't faster than the rate of advances in the West. In terms of the distribution of where chips are made, I think there's no doubt you're going to have some reduction in Taiwan's importance. But that's not saying much, because Taiwan is so important today. And the question is, is what rate? The CHIPS Act is certainly going to get a round of new investment in the United States. The question is whether it gets a second round and a third round. And, you know, I wouldn't be someone who would bet on a second or third CHIPS Act. And so the question is going to be, do we invest this round of funding in a way that catalyzes multiple private sector rounds in the future? And I hope the answer is yes, but that's still an uncertainty uh, that we've got to operate around. And if the answer to that is no, then I think TSMC's... uh, preferred strategies to invest domestically. Samsung's preferred strategies to invest domestically. And there's a question of Intel, which we haven't discussed yet. Um, Intel will invest naturally a lot in the United States, but uh, you know, Intel is in the midst of trying to catch up to TSMC and Samsung and uh, may or may not succeed.
0: There's a really interesting story in New York Times a few weeks ago about how TSMC's investments in the US are going with the Arizona fab that they are committed to. And that there's a lot of on the record and off the record complaining from TSMC personnel about the labor costs in the United States, construction costs, the, the time that it takes to get permits, and how those fabs are so much less economical than they are in Taiwan. And then there's what I thought was potentially some pretty racist critiques from Taiwanese managers about American propensity to, to do hard work, which uh, I'm not sure is, is fully accurate But the reality is that there's no question that fabs in the U.S., even with the subsidies, are still much less economical than they are in other parts of the world for a variety of different reasons. It'll be really hard to solve, just structural reasons, labor costs and environmental permits and so forth. Is that going to limit our ability to really have independence here in the United States and, frankly, in Europe and, and other major advanced economies? So I think the cost issue is a big one, but I, I think
1: more of it is solvable than than we think. So first off, on, on labor costs, over the lifetime of a new facility, 70% of the cost is machinery. And that costs the same no matter where you put it. So we're, we're only dealing with 30% of the lifetime cost. And there aren't that many people in a fab. And even in Taiwan or Korea, they're not that cheap. So labor costs are part of the story, but they're actually a, a surprisingly small part of the story. I think if you look at the cost of power, water, other inputs, land, those are all important factors. Those are solvable factors. You can, In uh, fact, we have plenty of power and, and plenty of water here in the United States compared to <laughs> Taiwan, <laughs> that's which, right. that's which right. has very little. Although we are building facilities in Arizona, so I don't know about the water situation there. But, um, but well, I, the, They recycle most of their water. That's great. yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so I think those are our solvable issues. On permitting, you know, we're worse than Europe right now. Uh, so with with no offense to my European friends, uh, that suggests we have uh, some pretty plausible steps we could take to make the situation better. Uh, we're actually the worst in the world uh, when you look at any major market for producing semiconductors. And so all that to me suggests that there's there's progress that can be made. The challenge is that look at permitting. It's federal level, it's local level, state level. There's a lot of different people you need to get on board uh, pushing the same direction. And if you're Korea or Taiwan, where the chip industry is so important, you know, the permits get approved right away because everyone understands why this is such a big issue. Whereas in the U.S., semiconductors are one of many
0: industries that uh, don't always get what they they want. We don't often talk about Korea, but it's actually a huge player in the space. Samsung, one of the top manufacturers of advanced chips. They're a big player in memory. And they, have, in addition to uh, Samsung, they have SK Hynix as well. But they also manufacture processor chips, logic chips. And do you see Korea sort of becoming the next Taiwan? Because they do have significant advantages, government subsidies, major industries that are sort of almost government industries in a way or more or less are certainly heavily supported by the government, uh, cheaper labor costs. Do they have an opportunity to say, you know what, we have maybe slightly less difficult situation geopolitically, although we have North Korea to worry about. But you know, maybe not an immediate problem, and we can take a lot more orders, build a lot more fabs, and allow companies like Apple and others that are concerned about the potential of invasion to diversify. Well, I think Samsung's been trying that um, with with not as much
1: success as they would have liked. Uh, there's a couple of reasons why Samsung has struggled to keep up with TSMC and Foundry. One is that, as you mentioned, the, the company's chip business is uh, really specializes in memory and they're uh, at the, the top of the memory business, which has been a good business for them to be in. But I think it does have the effect of making the logic side of the house be the second tier. Um, and the second issue is that Samsung competes with many potential customers. So Apple used to produce uh, chips with Samsung. And then after a very acrimonious divorce, uh, Moved to TSMC. Uh, both firms produce smartphones. There were a lot of concerns on Apple's side that Apple's innovations were being ported over to uh, Samsung, and and Samsung, because it's a sprawling conglomerate that produces all sorts of devices, ends up in a position of competing or potentially competing with a lot of potential customers. Whereas TSMC doesn't produce, doesn't compete with any of its customers because it doesn't do anything other than manufacture chips and so TSMC has made that central to its marketing strategy and customers take it very seriously. It's one of the reasons I think why TSMC has done so well relative to firms that are more integrated but also more competitive vis vis their customers. And that's a problem for Samsung. Also Intel finds itself in a similar position today.
0: When you look at the advancements of chips, are we fighting the last war? Because the Moore's law really is dead now, right? And our ability to shrink is diminishing by the day we're running into fundamental physics problems as we get to two nanometers maybe one nanometer but you have spillover effects of energy causing issues heat problems etc is the push going forward perhaps not going to be let's shrink transistors but maybe do other things like chiplets for example and 3d and what have you and if so are we well positioned for that next generation of cutting edge advancements so I think what you find when
1: you look at um, look at all of the trends under the rubric of heterogeneous integration, so bringing different uh, types of chips or computing capabilities together on um, on, a, on a given chip or on a given um, given set of chips, I, I think what you find is that a lot of the tools that you need to do that uh, are quite similar to the tools that you need to shrink transistors, because you're still talking about manufacturing at a microscopic scale. A lot of the design methodologies you need are are different in some ways, but drawn a lot of similar expertise as well. Uh, And so actually, it it seems most likely that even as Moore's Law slows, and we're going to see it slow over the next five years or decade, um, the... The, the next generation techniques we're going to need are actually going to draw on the same set of skills and same set of tools uh, with with modifications but the same basic knowledge base and uh, I think that sets up US equipment producers for example uh, to be in a very strong position US design firms to be in a very strong position uh, but it also means that you need companies that are very good at manufacturing at scale and uh, that's where companies like TSMC I think uh, are already trying to capitalize on uh, advanced packaging um, using their Advanced fabrication capabilities and putting it in the packaging space.
0: I want to talk a little bit about China's retaliation because one of the things that happened just recently is that China announced a cybersecurity review of Micron, which is a US based memory manufacturer, and whether their chips are safe for the Chinese market. A very peculiar investigation that I'm sure is not an accident given everything that we're doing to try to constrain China's industry. Where do you see, not necessarily the Micron case specifically, but where do you see things going? in terms of China's focus on damaging US and perhaps other Western firms and their ability to sell in the Chinese market? Uh, The dilemma that Chinese
1: leaders face is that they are trying to slow down decoupling because they believe that decoupling will hurt them more than it will hurt the West. I think it's probably true. Um, And that retaliation accelerates the coupling because it makes not only US firms but Japanese, Korean, other firms look at the Chinese market and say it's more dangerous than I even previously thought. And so we haven't actually seen substantive retaliation. We've seen the Micron case, which is thus far just a headline. We've seen headlines about rare out action. Um, You could argue we've seen a couple of semiconductor mergers that haven't been approved. Maybe that's retaliation. But I think by any assessment, whatever retaliation there's been has been pretty marginal. Um, relative to the impact of the export And controls. you think it's
0: just because they have
1: very limited leverage? I think they, they realize that retaliation brings many costs as well as whatever political benefits.
0: So you've written what is probably the authoritative history on the semiconductor industry. What other lessons do you think we can learn from that history over the last uh, 60 years or so that can apply today into this geopolitical struggle that we have with China? Well, I think the, the key lesson that I took away was that, you, know,
1: you hear people throw on phrases like supply chain, but you don't know anything about supply chains unless you've dug into a specific supply chain for a specific industry. And that's something that I think we collectively have done a bad job at in many industries. Uh, and in the chip industry, once you start doing it, you find all sorts of fascinating facts that until recently weren't really known in industry circles or in policy circles. The the, the single points of failure, the reliance on Taiwan, um, and, and this is something that I think we need to be doing in more industries, because it's one thing to throw on phrases like decoupling, it's one thing to talk about um, economic influence of other countries, but unless you've actually mapped it out, you don't really understand what's going on. And it's hard to map out. There are so many different steps in the process, and there are so many
0: countries it intersects with, but actually doing the work lead, uh, yields a ton of insights. So we got the policymakers really interested in chips, remarkably, and... You, know, you could argue about their level of understanding of the issue, but nevertheless, we have, we've had some progress and, and have passed this historic industrial policy bill, the Chips and Science Act. What other industries do you think we should be paying attention to that we may not be as focused on today? I think the, the, there's an interesting question, a set of questions about biotechnology,
1: um, where I don't think we've, we're have we in the early stages right now of doing the supply chain mapping, both for pharmaceuticals and, and, and biotech components. Um, I think for the electronics industry in general, um, we're still in the early stages there, too, of mapping. We understand now the chip industry, but then from a chip to an iPhone or a server involves not just chips, but lots of electronic components, circuit boards, et cetera, which... Uh, Even chemicals to chemicals, produce Chemicals, them. chemicals, yep, yep. Um, and that is something that is understandable, but uh, I think there's a lot of work to be done to actually map that out and understand the implications.
0: Last question, and let's tie this into the Russian invasion of Ukraine. One of the key ways in which the administration tried to respond to that invasion other than supporting the Ukrainians was to put forth very comprehensive and unprecedented export controls measures on Russian ability to import chips. In fact, basically, all chips are banned from import into Russia. Now, we know that it hasn't stopped import of chips into the country. We've published a report at Solrata talking about how they're still able to get ships from China, from Hong Kong, transship it from Kazakhstan, Armenia, and other places. But nevertheless, there appears to be more enforcement focused on this. Kazakhstan and Turkey actually have just announced that they're going to be looking very hard at their custom processes to to limit transshipments. Is this going to be an enormous leverage point for the United States going forward? We've never applied this level of export controls and chips to other countries like iran for example or even north korea and is this going to augment our financial sanctions tools that have become sort of the default policy tools in national security space anytime we're not happy with someone we're going to slap financial sanctions on them going forward do you think that export controls and chips are going to play the same role
1: you know i i think i think their effects depend dramatically on the economy in question so every economy has banks And so almost any economy can be impacted by financial sanctions. But the types of chips you need varies dramatically based on the types of manufacturing you have. Uh, And so in in Russia, for example, there's not... um, The manufacturing sector is the defense sector, the auto industry, a couple of others. Um, And the impacts have been quite interesting. In the defense sector, of course, we don't have great data. Um, It's clear some chips are coming in, there are probably some supply chain problems. In the auto industry, there's been complete devastation, um, partly due to chips and other components uh, as well, but Russia's producing around half of the the autos that produced pre-war, which is really interesting. But that's an effect you would only have in a country with an auto industry. And so if you turn to North Korea, there is no auto industry.
0: it's not obvious. But that there's a missile production industry, That's there's right. a nuclear weapons production industry, there's That's lots right. of things that still need chips, right?
1: That's right, yeah. And so then the question is, you know, on, the, on the defense industry, so defense industries are, are unique in some ways because they produce much lower production runs for many things. And so you know, for an, for an auto, if you're going to produce you know, a million autos, you need a million of each type of chip. Um, whereas in defense industrial production, you don't produce a million of most things. Um, if it's an airplane, you're going to produce... In the hundreds, um, missiles it'll be, maybe be hundreds or low thousands, uh, and so smuggling is much more viable in the defense industry in terms of the quantities. Now,
0: because the- we're talking about really small components,
1: yeah, you small can components. literally load in a backpack yeah. and cross the border, right? Yeah. Now, now for d- d- certain defense industrial uses, you need unique types of chips. Um, so we know, for example, after 2014, the U.S. imposed controls on radiation-hardened chips that Russia somewhat shockingly was able to buy until 2014 from Western suppliers, and that caused huge problems in the Russian space industry. But That's a unique type of chip that is not in every dishwasher or iPhone. Um, So for certain types of communication sensors, chips that are more niche in their application, controls are a lot more likely to be effective than something like a straightforward microcontroller, which is widely used in civilian devices.
0: Well, absolutely fascinating discussion, Chris. The book is Chip War. The Fight for the World's Critical Technology. Highly recommended to our one Thanks so much for coming in. Thanks for having me. Bye. Bye.